0: To the silver
1: screen. Welcome back, listeners, to a, another review of The Chronicles of Narnia, with The Chronicles of Narnia, the Prince Caspian, um, being the sequel. So originally, the plan was to have three guests on, myself, Tommy, and Andrew. Um, unfortunately, Andrew let me know today, right as we're about to record, he's not able to make it with us today. So right now, it is just me and Tommy. Say hello, Tommy. Hello, Tommy. Tommy's returning with us one more time to help me review uh, Prince Caspian, and let's go ahead and start off with how we saw this. Tommy, how did you originally see this movie?
2: Well, like the first one, this was promoted at my church and saying like, hey, on this specific day, we're going to go see uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. This is a family event, blah, 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 blah. And we did just that. My family went and I remember it was 2008, so I was in fifth grade. And I went with my family and it was a blast. I remember it was if not a little bit more exciting in the theaters than the first one. And I was a little bit older and a little bit more prone to violence than I was in third grade when the first one came out. So me and my brother uh, Hayden, who has been on the podcast when we were young, when this came out, uh, you know, as soon as it was over, we were, we were out in the parking lot, reenacting the battle scenes and all that. So that's, that's where I came to find this film.
1: Yeah. I think for me, and I think it was also the same for Andrew, um, we had somehow convinced our mom to take us to the theater to watch it, um, because we had definitely seen, you know, The line the Witch, and the wardrobe" at that point, um, we may have even owned it on Blu-ray, or not Blu-ray, but we may have even owned it on DVD for all I know, so we were very aware of The Chronicles of Narnia at this point in our life, and so when we saw Prince Caspian was coming out, you know, obviously we were very excited for that, so, I think I've mentioned on previous podcasts, my childhood, we never really went to the theater very often Um, with my parents. They weren't really too big on on that kind of a thing. But this was one of the few movies I was actually able to convince my mom to take my brother and I to watch it. And I don't think I've seen it since. Like, I don't think I've seen this movie since I watched it back in the theater when it came out in 2008, which is surprising to me because, you know, that's also the same year that, like, The Dark Knight came out. Um, I think Iron Man 2? Iron Man, yeah, no, I The first I mean, Iron Man, sorry, the second one was two thousand nine. Yeah, so the first Iron Man came out that year as well. So this was a pretty huge year for cinema. Um, looking back on, I lied, is two thousand ten. Yeah, it's hitting me now. So either way, this was a relatively big movie to come out since the release of the one, the the movie that came before it, which was the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe." So surprisingly, though, when it came, when it comes to scores, and it comes to uh well scores are scores are roughly about the same, but money is a bit different. So we'll just get into that real quick. IMDB at a six point five, which is a bit lower than last time. I think last time was a six was a six point nine. Mm-hmm. Um meta score of a sixty-one, rotten tomato score of a sixty seven percent, critic score seventy-three percent, audience score, similar score of an A minus, which has dropped since last time. That was an A plus last time, it, a letterbox score of two point eight, which is Really low, mm-hmm. because a two point five is like right halfway. Okay, so could you guess what the budget is for this? Just I, take a wild guess.
2: I want to say it was around one hundred fifty million. One hundred fifty, you say? Yeah.
1: Okay, so just for a little bit of context, last time the line that went to the wardrobe had a budget of one hundred eighty million. Mm. Um, does that change your answer at all?
2: Now I want to bring it up to okay. about two. I want. I'll say two.
1: 110 million 210 okay you're very close actually it's 225 okay so they got a bigger budget this time um and Adam adamson the director did state that you know he wanted to now kind of go bigger with this one since the yeah. last time now that he was a bit more experienced with what it was with his experience with the first one he felt that now he could go bigger with this next one and so he wanted to get more extras wanted to have bigger action sequences so he wanted to go all the way and he got a bigger budget out of it too. Two hundred twenty-five million is a healthy sum of money. Now, for Disney, you know that's not too much out of the ordinary for a trusted um, franchise at this point, which is brand new. I mean, a year
2: prior to this was at World's End, Pirates of the Caribbean, and that's that right. was that's a record-breaking budget. Right. I, uh, I'm any sure. movie? I think it's. I think it still holds uh, the record. Uh, yeah. That's not an animated movie because Tangled still holds that one. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong. It could have changed since then, since I've looked it up, but yeah, this, this was a big budget.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If I remember, I'm trying to remember if there had been on a movie that I topped. Um, I think it may have been Avengers like infinity war plus Endgame. but it's kind of hard to distinguish, you know, where the budget begins. and ends with those two movies. Cause they're made at the same time. It is Avengers Endgame. Okay. I wondered at 400 million. I wondered, I wondered, I, I guess they may have released the a billion, almost half of a billion dollars. That's ridiculous. And I wondered that too, because um, we talked about how, uh, I think Corbin and I talked about how, at I think at the time that we recorded that podcast, they hadn't released the actual numbers for the budget yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. $400 million for Avengers Endgame is, uh, is honestly, for me, that sounds about right. Because I know that it was rumored that they were spending a billion dollars to finish it off with oh. the last two movies. Anyways, as you can see, very big budget for this movie, which is again a little bit surprising um, because this is a, a director who again came off of Shrek um, before he did, you know, *Line the Witch in the Wardrobe*. So either way, I, I guess I'm not too surprised at this, but it is, you know, a big budget. Um, it it is, is a big budget. Everything else is aside. It is
2: Disney's *Lord of the Rings*.
1: Yeah, it, it essentially is. Um, this is as we talked about last. Uh, as we talked about last week, uh, we noticed how you know. It's kind of funny how this one came out in 2004 and the Lord of the Rings had like just wrapped up its trilogy, which was huge at the time. And I mean, still is big now, but at the time, you know, that was like the thing. So it's no surprise that Disney had some kind of an answer for that. And now they're doing their own trilogy, although it's not nearly as, um, they're not releasing them as close to one another as like what the Lord of the Rings did with this original trilogy. So yeah, with this summer round, as I mentioned, they're going bigger and they're going, they have a bigger budget. So uh, I guess the question is, does that still hold up today? Um, that's the thing, the biggest question is, Lord of the Rings, I know, has kind of hold, held itself to time, even though it released back in the early 2000s, that trilogy. Um, people today still regard the Lord of the Rings as the best fantasy trilogy, just kind of in general. Like, if you're thinking fantasy, you're pr- it's most likely because of Lord of the Rings is uh, some kind of inspiration for it, even by today's movies. So, all that to say... Um, the question remains is last time we noted that we had a lot of nostalgia for that movie. So this time around, we don't know this one as much. I know. And we know that the one that comes after this even less. So the question I think remains for us to be answered, which we'll talk about here in a second in this podcast. Um, when we get to the spoilers, does this movie hold up in any kind of way? Cause we don't have as much nostalgia for it. We've seen it like maybe once or twice, um, but we don't, know it nearly as close as we do as the previous one.
2: Yeah. And as you may know, like I, I connect my nostalgia primarily with music. Right. And I will say in this film, there are a lot of variations of the first one, which I appreciated a lot. However, I heard a lot of recycled um, things as well. A lot mm. of recycled tracks that fit perfectly in the first one. It fit with the motion, the fluidness of each scene the construction of each scene. Now we're just like copying and pasting it into this movie, it feels like. And it's not as fluid as I'd like it to be. Um, When you're watching it go through each scene, I I just don't follow it very well. So yeah, the nostalgia isn't 100% there. I
1: appreciate the movie, but man, the nostalgia just does not exist for this one. All right, well, we're about to get right into spoilers here in just a second. So if you haven't seen The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, it's on Disney+, Plus, right? Just like the yep. other two? Okay, yeah. So if you haven't seen it and you have a Disney+, Plus uh, Disney+, Plus subscription, you can watch it there. Um, now you can, of course, you can pause the podcast and come back after you've watched it and you can continue where you left off. But from here on out, this will be spoiler territory, so you have been warned. 1,300 years have passed in Narnia since the Pevensey kids left to return to the professor's home. In that time, a new group called the Telmarines have entered the land of Narnia and took it over, resulting in the Narnians being pushed into hiding, giving up hope on Aslan to return, and feeling as if the Pevensey children have abandoned them. Prince Caspian's aunt is giving birth to a son on the night of an eclipse. Miraz has kept an eye on this and knows that tonight is a very special night. The professor warns Prince Caspian of Miraz's plan and sends him away with Susan's horn just before Miraz and his men, enter his room and try, to att- and try to kill him. Caspian escapes into the forest and runs into some hiding Narnians with some more Telmarines on his tail, causing him to blow the horn. Back in London, Peter gets into a fight with some other students on the subway, but after it is broken up, something weird begins to happen. The Pevensie kids recognize this feeling and hold hands as the London tube falls apart, landing them directly in Narnia once again. But things are much different than what they were when the kids were last in Narnia. They find their old weapons in the remains of the castle where they were crowned. And in the distance, they see a dwarf being thrown into the water by a couple of Maraz's men. The Pevency kids help him out, and he brings them to Prince Caspian with the other Narnians. A plan is hatched to storm the castle, but Caspian's emotions overcome him. He saves the professor who reveals that Maraz killed his father. Caspian then has to get the truth out of Maraz himself. The rest of the Narnians attack, but it ends in a bloodbath. While the Pevensey kids and a handful of Narnians escape, the rest of them are trapped in the courtyard and are slaughtered, along with some of Miraz's men. Back at Aslan's Hall, Caspian is approached by Nickabrick, promising the death of Miraz in return for a drop of blood. The remnants of the White Witch's staff is brought forth, and an image of her is cast, but Edmund shatters the ice sheet. Miraz and his men arrive to fight, and in order to give Lucy and Susan time to find Aslan, Peter and Miraz fight to the death. Peter bests Miraz and leaves Caspian to murder his uncle, which he refuses. Lord's Hope of Spain murders Miraz with one of Susan's arrows, blaming it on the Pevensies. This then causes a war between the Narnians and the Mraz's men. But it doesn't take long for the Telmarines to overwhelm them, but while they are fighting, Lucy finds Aslan. If I had found you sooner, would it have saved them? Lucy asks. It is impossible to know, Aslan remarks, following a roar that brings the trees to aid the battle. Lord Sepespian calls his men to retreat to the bridge, but on the other side is Lucy and Aslan, the mighty lion roars, bringing forth a river god, which swallows Lord Sepespian whole, ending the war. Caspian is hailed King of Narnia, and the poor Pevensey kids are sent back to London, but not before Susan and Caspian share a goodbye kiss. The kids end up back where they left off, and the train arrives as the kids hop on it, and it speeds away into the tube as credits roll. All right, so let's go ahead and start off, once again, with the opening scene. Uh, We don't start off with the Pevensey kids. It's actually starting off in Narnia. Um, And we meet meet a few new characters. Miraz is one of them. Prince Caspian, as well. And his aunt, who's giving birth to a son. And we know that there's something that's happening tonight. You know, there's, as I mentioned, kind of a special night. Um, There's an eclipse happening. Uh, You know, the the lady is giving birth to a son. Um, So... We kind of see Miraz, you know, he's, of course, instantly given off as a bad guy to us. Um, So Miraz, he seems like, you know, he's trying to stop something, which we've seen happen before with the White Witch. You know, he's trying to stop something that uh, some kind of, I guess, prophecy that's going to that he's been heard. It has been told is going to come true, given these certain things um, that come about. Right. Kind of in the last one, how. When uh, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve show up in Narnia, then Aslan will return. Right. That was the kind of like the prophecy of the last time. This time around, it seems like there's some kind of prophecy with Prince Caspian. Right. Well, so, it's more
2: of it's more of uh, his uh, Miraz's brother uh, was Prince Caspian's father. Right. Who was the king who quote unquote died in his sleep, as we we're told. So that leaves Caspian as heir to the throne. Right. So Caspian is currently prince and going to be heir however this baby is now born to uh take the place um as miraz wants it so he goes to kill caspian and and uh caspian flees but to, in order to kill caspian um or if you know if it succeeded caspian dying uh this baby will be heir but miraz can be king for that period of time until the sun grows to be uh strong enough to reign but right yeah, not so much a prophecy, more of uh, killing f- like family to uh, have a stricter bloodline on the throne.
1: Yeah, essentially Miraz wants the throne. I guess we could put it that way. That's, the, I guess, the best, the best way of putting it. Uh, he wants to control what is Narnia at this point, right? Um, and of course, it has been 1,300 years since the last time we saw it. So things are very, very different. Than what we had originally seen in the previous movie, a lot darker. Yeah, a lot darker. Um, both, you know, lighting wise, visually, and of course, even how it were, even some places that it ended up going on the story. It's it's a lot darker. It's a lot more adult, which is interesting because while it still retains that PG rating, um, they're going, they're pushing it, you know, a little bit farther this time. When we talked about it in the last podcast, we felt like you know the line that went to the wardrobe, it was already kind of pushing it. Um, Just to kind of begin with, wasn't really pushing it too much, but we felt like from what we remember, this one pushed it even more. And so we'll get into more specifics when we get there. But either way, yeah, this is going for a more adult tone to it. Whereas, you know, previously it was very, you know, kid centric. Its audience was that of probably around, I guess between Lucy's age and Peter's age. That was kind of its target audience. Um, It's still the same here, but, you know, they've, of course, They've uh, grown. It's been four years since the last movie had come out. So if the same audience returns for, you know, the one that uh, for the same movie um, last time with this one, you know, that is their target audience. Roughly, what would you say? Probably 12 years old to maybe in their early 20s, maybe.
2: I mean, yeah, I'm 23 and I love watching this movie again. Uh, I would definitely say, yeah, 12 is a minimum. Yeah. Yeah. obviously a 12-year-old that can handle uh, some violence because this movie is a lot more violent than the first one.
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, And that definitely, I think, kind of comes to a head, or at least I think really bears its teeth when it gets to the scene when they raid the courtyard. Um, And then they're trapped in the courtyard and those who, you know, can't get out are then slaughtered, right? Right. And so we'll get to, we'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, that our target audience has definitely grown up since the last time because last time it was you know a lot different. And we, when we were kids, we highly connect, we really connected to that movie. So okay, so either ways, either way, um, we're introduced to our main, or I guess not really our main character, but a new character, Prince Caspian. What are your thoughts? Like not just in this scene, but kind of throughout the story. What are your thoughts on this character, Prince Caspian?
2: Well, one of the biggest things that always confused me before I really understood the history. Of Telmarines um, is why do they have a Spanish-American accent? Yeah. Um, Like, are are we not in, like, a normal – I mean, in a fantasy land, you know? But I guess I could also, you know, vouch as – or I can also go against why do, you know, people speak with perfect accent or an English-British accent, all that kind of stuff. But I always wondered why they chose, like, a Spanish accent, but I guess it's because – um, the history goes that Spanish pirates fell into Narnia, and it was through that, and I mean, he explains it there at the end, um, yeah. it was through that that their their heritage was passed down. So, but Prince Caspian, he is a British actor, um, acting with a Spanish accent. Um, Ben Barnes, right? Ben Barnes is yep. that his name. Yeah, I think he does a great job. Apparently, Andrew Garfield. Audition for this role that would be interesting. I and I was thinking about that. I'm like, I think I would have liked that because I do like Andrew Garfield. Um, and this is 2008, so this was four years before Amazing Spider Man. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that was probably the biggest film that really launched his career. It really
2: was, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Ben Barnes himself, I think he does a great job. Um, for the most part, I think. He's too stone-faced, or not stone-faced, stone-wall-faced, I guess. Not a crazy amount of emotion.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I don't think I got too much emotion out of him either. I think the best scene with him is when he finds out um, that, you know, Maraz was the guy who killed his dad, right? Yeah. I just Probably my favorite scene with him because I feel like we get a lot of emotion out of that.
2: Right, a lot of character there. I, Mm. I don't know. Other than that, there just doesn't seem to be like shock or awe on his face any horror when the when the when you know that it calls for that how when do we see him smile (laughs) i guess at the the very end we do i think we do sure yeah i guess with him and susan and maybe or maybe when the professor wakes him up and says and he's like five more minutes or whatever but other than that like it's you don't get much from him
1: yeah yeah and you kind of hit on something really interesting too because just as this movie is also Darker in visuals and darker in tone. Um, it's it's also like the story itself, the way that it's told, again, with that tone, um, is rather depressing, right? Oh, because yeah. um, Narnians, we find out, have been pretty much in hiding for who knows how many years um, because of the Telmarines who've come in and have taken over. Um, but at the same time, you know, there just seems to be a lot, like a lot that's so unsure, right? The the Narnians, to me, they kind of feel like, again, we're, this movie, just like the last one, has a lot of biblical references to it, which makes sense because C.S. Lewis was a big theologian. Um, but in this one, like we said last time, it's kind of hard to like watch that movie and not see a lot of those uh, allegories. And it's kind of the same here, although I feel like they're not nearly as heavy as what they were last time. They're there, oh, yeah. um, but they're a bit more subtle, I think, this time around.
2: definitely there.
1: Yeah. I think I liked the way that it went about this time because of, you know, it again, it was a bit more subtle with how it went about bringing in those allegories. Like, for instance, I saw the Narnians more of, like, the Israelites, right? Yeah, exactly. They kind of, after so long of being outcasts, or, yeah, after so long of not hearing anything from God, they kind of begin to move away from him, right? So, right. that was one of
2: the things that I saw. And Telmarines is the Egyptians, like, yeah, it's almost along the lines of that, except, you know, the Egyptians knew the Israelites existed and they enslaved them, right. rather than called them fairy tales, and then were encountered by them, they're like,
1: oh, so... Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting to see these biblical references return, but at the same time, like I mentioned, they're not as, um, in your face. Yeah. They're not as in your face as before. They're a bit more subtle this time around. It feels like they're, um, taking elements from the Bible, um, as parts of, as ways to tell its story than before, where it was blatantly taking allegories to tell some of the stories from the Bible almost. Yeah, you
2: definitely have an exodus kind oh, of yeah. thing going. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Definitely have an exodus thing going, especially at, at the end there, the final climax of that battle, you know?
1: Yeah, and it could, I mean, you it could be said that uh, maybe the character of Prince Caspian is more of a, uh, oh, what's his name? Moses character. Right? More of a Moses, yeah, I can. Uh, see Moses that. Moses archetype, maybe. Because yes. he's the one who frees the Narnians, right? With the help, of, now, of course, he does uh, help with the, uh, with, there is help from the Pevensey kids, but, you know, he was the one who was on top. He belonged to what would be the Egyptian family in this, in this case, the Telmarines. And then he's cast out from his, from his role there and joins the Narnians who are the ones who are, are being, you know, cast down. Right. Mm-hmm. And, also, and then brings them out of that.
2: Yeah. You could also see like, uh. Possibly like Caspian is like David and Miraz is like King Saul. Definitely, I also thought about that, like, um, because King Saul was very jealous of how David was, and I mean, there's it's a totally different story from the Bible and Prince Caspian, but you know, Saul tried to kill David, and it was that kind of a thing, that kind of relationship. So I saw, I saw
1: that as well. I mean, not as prominent, but Mm -hmm. I still thought that way. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's why I kind of wanted to ask about Prince Caspian first, not just because he's the first character that we see, but he's also like the central driving force for this plot, right? He is the one who brings uh, the Pevensey kids to Narnia because he he gets the horn, right? Yes, he's, he's the horn, one. Yep. Yeah, he's the one who was part of the family. And wants to repair, find out that he, the best way to go about this this big war that's been happening, be- or the part, the reason the, the thing he wants to do is to fix this relationship between the Narnians and the Telmarines, right? Um, and how he's big and now how hard it is to do that because because of Miraz. right so he is the, I asked about him first because he's the central driving force for this whole story I do want to kind of relate him then to Peter because peter da, Peter in this movie, in this movie is very different from when we left him off it's not so much of him as
2: a beginning leader but now a confused leader. Yeah, maybe. he
1: yeah, I know one of the one of the things that uh, Adam Adamson wanted to explore was okay, well, because he didn't he didn't think that the books captured this very well. He thought that well, if we look at say what the kids are what what's going on with the kids after they've left Narnia, like, you know, everything that happened in Narnia stays with them, right? So what happens to them as characters after they they are sent back to their real world? And in this case, as we see Peter in the last one he learned to become a leader. This time, you know, he, like you said, he's kind of a confused leader. He doesn't really know. um, He's kind of a hothead, right?
2: He he, uh, leans too much on his own understanding.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I saw that as him feeling, a bit. he's become more arrogant this time around. I think that's the best way of putting it uh, to me is he's a lot more arrogant in this movie because of his role in the last one. He feels, well, I was this great leader. I led, you know, the Narnians into war and now he's back to normal life, right? So I kind of saw that as, you know, he has to learn to lose his arrogance if he wants to be something, if he wants to be like the king of Narnia again, he wants to lead the Narnians out of captivity. He needs to put his of,
2: trust back in Aslan and not in himself.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of a big thing about this movie, too, is Lucy sees Aslan pretty early on when they get into Narnia. Nobody else does. And there's a line from Peter. uh, I think is where he's like why didn't i see him and she's like maybe you weren't looking well that line too that's one of my favorite lines there was that line too but there's one later on from peter i'm trying to remember what part of the movie it was um okay so it's right when they all get together and they're in aslan they're i think they're sitting in where the this the stone table was or the correct stone table was at. they're all kind of having a meeting about what they should do Mm -hmm. um and this right when their their plan is hatched to go and fight or go and you know secretly attack the Telmarines, right? Um, this is when Lucy like chimes up and is like, "Hey, uh, we're acting like there's only two options here: either we die here because um, one of the plans is to stay and just defend where they're at, or die there. That being the Telmarines' castle. Um, who are have we?" And her, what she says is, "Or have we all forgotten who really defeated the White Witch?" And Peter says, I think we've waited for Aslan long enough. And I think that's kind of the moment where I feel like his arrogance has kind of overshadowed the thing that, you know, f- you know, gave him the opportunity to be a leader, right? It's Aslan who gave him the opportunity in the last one. Now he's, now that kind of like with the Narnians, he's kind of given up hope, right? He, he feels as if Aslan doesn't really care anymore for him. So why should he care for Aslan? And as if he's losing his belief from what what once was to something that you know I can just do it myself kind of a thing kind of mm-hmm. that's kind of the attitude I was getting from him especially with that line I think that really shows how far how far his character has kind of regressed almost um, with what he was when we first when we last left him off. Okay, so anyways, um, we do find out the Narnians are real, uh, or that not that they're real, but they exist. Um, whereas they originally were thought to be extinct. And then we cut to the Pevensie kids and they're just kind of living a somewhat normal life in London. Um, we didn't really ever see this. And I think around this time, the war, is it? I think is wrapping up at this point. Um, we kind of see soldiers walking around here and there, but it's not like before where, you know, they were hiding from the war. Um, now it sounds like the war has either become, it's kind of hard to tell if it's become like a normal part of their life um, or if it's winding, winding down, but either way, uh, you know, they are living a somewhat normal life now, which is, again, kind of opposite to what we saw in the last one. And they enter Narnia um, pretty quick, actually. Yeah, it's, it's like right after the fight, They
2: Peter explains himself to the girls. I mean, Edmund had just jumped in. Like, I see a, the start of Edmund's character change from the last movie. Mm. You know, Edmund the betrayer uh, from Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe to immediately jumping in and helping protect Peter in this, in this fight in the tube. And so after Peter explains himself, he's like, how long does he expect us to wait and all that? And then Susan being the logistical person she is once again says, I think we just need to accept the fact, you know, that this isn't happening anymore and we should uh, just get used to normal life again. Mm -hmm. Um, You know how she was pretty much in the first one. and, it isn't until then when they sit down and they're all like, like, Oh, something's touching me. It's like to get them off the bench because everything is about to change. Yeah. Kind of a thing. And sure enough, like they're, they're transported there. And I'm going to say right now, uh, when they walk on the beach and they all, the moment they realize where they are, where they are and what just happened, um, evacuating London plays.
1: Yeah, it does. And, and,
2: yeah. I get the chills like it just it hits me. I'm like, oh, there we go. There we are. We're back. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, and they're they're so overjoyed. They are beyond grateful and uh, beyond grateful. That's, <laughs> they're beyond thrilled. That's what I wrote down. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, they're on the beach. This is definitely a new location from what we've seen, because I guess we got so used to snow and snow forests and then the battlefield, obviously, in um, the rocks and whatnot, that we forget that you know Narnia is a coastline, and yes, we see at the very end a Care Paravel, um, but it's just a new location, and apparently they really went all out looking for these locations. It took them like eight months, yeah, which I think is wild. Um, but yeah, we are now on the beaches of Care Paravel, and they came and recognize. I mean, they they came and recognize it at first because thirteen hundred years. I mean, it's going to look different.
1: Yeah. They, it's been 300 years, like you said, and the first place they end up is where they were crowned, right? Right. And they don't even recognize it because it's, you know, all in ruins. And so this is one of those things where I thought was very interesting was, you know, are we going to be able to see the, the ruins of Narnia? Like the movie that we watched before, are we going to be able to see, you know, uh, more of like that kind of thing? I know that uh, Breath of the Wild did this with uh, Legend of Zelda, which is has somewhat of a similar feel to it, right? It's like a fantasy, medieval-ish kind of world, right? But in that game, you're you're literally walking around some a lot of the ruins of of Hyrule, and so I was wondering, I was like, are they going to go do that in this one? Are they going to like s- go and scour some of the ruins of Narnia, like from what we had seen before? To be fair, there isn't really a whole lot, like building wise, it's mostly just forest, um, so. There wasn't really a whole lot to explore there either. So we really only have like this one scene, um, where they're exploring what was the throne room where they got crowned, um, and then they find their old stuff, right? That's really the only thing I saw. Um, uh, everything else is either in the castle, um, which is a new set. I think they built that castle as well for this movie. Oh man. Um, I don't know if they both like the whole thing that we see, but enough to for it to, you know, be a castle. Um Either way, it's either that or it's in Has- Aslan's How, where like they've been hiding out and they all, all the catacombs and stuff. So either way, I was curious to see if they'd go down that route. They never did, though.
2: Right. I will say, as they're walking and they're moving through the castle and they're coming to that realization, it's been a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, this place was taken over. It was invaded. Obviously, there are trees growing in the middle of these or what were once rooms like full trees it's been 500 plus years mm-hmm. and they're coming up to that realization and then uh, there's variations of the score that we've known love playing and gets you all emotional and then Lucy just comes out and says everybody we know Mr. Tumnus the beavers they're all gone yeah and that draws you as a viewer who really got to love the characters from the first movie to really feel how they feel and be like, wow. I feel like part of me just died with them. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's well done. I think it's well done. I I I wish they'd kind of I don't know. I guess if they did it too much, it would it would get annoying, but like they lamented on it. They didn't I I felt like they didn't lament maybe long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, what do I know? What do
1: I Yeah. And that's kind of one of the big themes of this movie is that of death, right? Because when they get there, they realize that pretty much everybody that they knew when they were last here, they're, I mean, they're basically dead at this point. Um, Aslan really being the only one, I guess you could consider. Either way. um, So a lot of the Narnians that they met were from before are dead. Um, A lot of, or uh, Miraz killed uh, Caspian's dad and he wanted to kill Caspian um so there's i feel like there's a lot of that theme of death with this movie right it's not a, again it's not very played you know too heavy on but it is definitely there and along with the same like darker tone that's something that i think that they're going for mm-hmm. right and they're going they're writing something with you know the tone or the the um the stakes are a little bit higher this time it feels like it feels like when um when towards the end when Peter calls a um, like a fight to the death with Miraz, it feels like you know a movie could go there, right? It could go uh, with one of them dying, which it I guess it technically does, although not from either one of their swords. It came from uh, one of Miraz's men, um, Lord. Oh man, what's his name again? Sepespian. Yeah, Lord Sepespian. Cepes- he is the one who ends up killing Miraz um, in the end of it. But- you come
2: to realize that he's kind of like the. I, I don't want to say the main antagonist because we experience so much of Miraz, but he he's the one who's ready to get stuff done. Yeah. Um yeah. He's seeing I, you. You watch it through the entire film. He and um, prof, uh, Professor
1: uh, General Glazel, I believe his name is. Yeah, I I always just called him General. They na- they him yeah. once, and then that was it. Yeah. So I just called him General in my notes. Uh,
2: yeah, Captain of Guards, General, whatever. Uh you, you see them kind of like eyeball Mirage like through the entire film, like this guy's not fit.
1: Yeah. This and guy's we, not fit. Yeah, we definitely get to see kind of like the two sides of you know Miraz's two men, two right hand men, that being the general and uh Lord Suspespian. because when they're having the battle between him and Peter, he set he tells the general, if this gets to a point where you know, I you know, I could be in danger, you know what to do, right? And hands him a crossbow. And now, of course, the general never go never follows through with that. Um, and it kind of flips it on its head once the battle once the, once the duel is finished um you get to see how Lord Cespebian is actually the one who wanted to control the whole time and so you kind of get to see how these two parts of uh this character um that that of Miraz you know the good and the bad side of you know of him maybe battling between each other how much the bad side ends up you know kind of doing what he was trying to do the whole time right he's always been trying to spin the story of you know what happened with Prince Caspian um, to his own gain, right? So he could become king, right? So that was—it's kind of the funny, kind of ironic it's that irony, one of his, yep. yeah, one of his own men did that to him, and he claims not really the throne, but more or less he claims the army, right? He wants to be in charge. In reality, yeah,
2: it's a very underwhelming death. I mean, we'll get yeah, into yeah, yeah. I agree. I think it I, is. I would have loved for his fate to be like that random guard that runs up and they cut his head off. Uh, yeah. I would have loved for something like that. Instead, so just stabs him in the back and he goes down and it's just like, Oh, there, there he goes. This big bad villain. Dead. Yeah. All right. Cool.
1: Yeah. And Cep- so is the one who gets to get eaten by the big water man. Yeah.
2: Like this side, this side council member. Yeah. I don't know where he like all of a sudden takes charge. He's like, Oh, I'm like, oh, okay, here he goes. This guy, here's the guy. you are going to have a big final battle with him. And sure enough, the very end it's just like, well, I mean, I really would have liked it if Mara is like, but you know, yeah. again, Yeah. I mean, also isn't, I think that's what C.S. Lewis had done as well. Yeah, I'm not, so I'm not hundred percent sure. Who am I to argue and debate with C.S. Lewis for mm. one who's long since passed. But anyway, I would like to touch on the fact that when I was a kid and we watched this movie. I was not ready as a fifth grader who hadn't read the book yet um, and had no idea about the history of Narnia. I was not ready for the main antagonist to be man. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for the magic of Narnia to seemingly just be gone. I like. I remember watching and thinking, man, give me the fawns. Give me the dwarves. I want to see all of that. I want to see like, like just. More shots of the force and all that. We're in a castle. We're in like a political council chamber. Yeah. All yeah. that kind of stuff. I'm like, and as a fifth grader, I'm like, what's happening? Is this Narnia? Or what are we watching? And I was almost mad at Disney for doing this, but I've come to the realization as I get older, I really appreciate timeline. I love history and I love like things that happen to cause events to take place. So the fact that now that I'm older, 1300 years have passed and what we once knew is gone changed as a kid. I hated it. I hated change but change is part of life right bad things happen life can be completely turned upside down and like with the coronavirus. We didn't see that happening in February Mm -hmm. out of nowhere like life just changed for everybody. Yeah, that happens in Narnia and Narnians who were living well in a, a civil war period when the Pevensies were, first got there are now called to unify under this new rule and they are not happy and we just see this whole new side of this world I like that I and as an adult now I I like that I like the 1300 years of past and I like this history mm-hmm. essentially
1: it's darker but I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, this movie is definitely going for, like you said, it's, it's going for, at least the beginning, it feels like it's not going for something that's as heavy on its fantasy elements than it is more of like it's somewhat period PC um, medieval kind of style elements, right? There's a, that heavy side of it, like which like you said, it's more or less hearkening on that of man being the control of Narnia than the fantasy elements, right? It's that reality that's coming, slowly setting in, it feels like, for Narnia, um, than the actual fantasy elements of it that makes Narnia as beautiful and as lively as it is, right? And so we have, I, I would say that we have, we do get to see this too, that of like man's rule over, you know, something, right? Man's rule seems to be something that is always, or in this case, is a cause for harm. And we get to see how uh, later on, when they build that bridge across the river, right, they're like tearing down trees and stuff like that, so they could build their own bridge, so um, just so they could do that, right, to get over to the other side. So we do get to see how um, at the it's kind of it kind of it kind of reminds me of Princess Mononoke in, a, in some ways because Princess Mononoke, while it fa- focused pretty much primarily on this issue of that of the harmony between man and nature. Um, it does remind me in this movie as well, that, that similar idea now played out very different ways. Um, uh, and this movie does more things outside of that it wants to talk about. Um, but that is something that I noticed is that of man's, like man's wants for control. Right. Um, and we do get to see that in several different areas. First off, just in general, the, 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 tel- the tel-marines and how they want to control Narnia just to begin with. Um, but also between Miraz fighting with Caspian's rule and then Caspian fighting with Peter's rule. And so we kind of get to see There's a lot of moments where there's a power struggle and pieces of Narnia, right? And we kind of get to see how how much those play into the different, different parts of the story here as well. And in the end, there needs to be one trust in Aslan.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead, man's fault by trying to rely on themselves in power is where just the troubles really
1: begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, we get to see how, um, you know, without like we mentioned, if it being like the Narnians are somewhat of the Israelites of the of from the Bible, you know, it wasn't until they finally were like fully involved with that of God who was leading them, you know, into the desert where they finally were able to get to where they're supposed to go, um and become what they were destined to be, which was the children of God or the the what was it, the uh the chosen one. I think it was the chosen people that's mm-hmm. the name. Yeah. Either way, it's the same thing here, right? The the Narnians have been pushed into hiding at this point and and so as we mentioned that Exodus E kind of theme thematic or Exodus E kind of allegory is being played out here um where, you know, it's like the tele- t- telemetries. As I keep wanting to say <laughs> Marines. The Telmarines are like the Egyptians like we were saying and the uh and the Narnians are like the Israelites. Right? Well, let's go ahead and talk about the Pevensey kids then. Just kind of, we talked about Peter a little bit earlier, um, and we can kind of get into him a little bit more in a second, but I kind of want to talk about the other three um, because this last time I mentioned one of my criticisms was I didn't feel like Susan did a a lot. Well,
2: (laughs) it's a complete turnaround in this movie. She's very much engaged.
1: Yes, I was happy to see that she's, you know, a lot more engaged in the story than what she she was before. Mm -hmm. She has a much more important role, and she does get to use her bow a bit more as well, which is a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, she's the woman Legolas. She's Disney's Legolas. Pretty much. She has some amazing uh, choreography Mm -hmm. in uh, the battle at Aslan's How, and um, and good leadership, too, with the archers up on top, even though they get sabotaged and whatnot. Right. But, yeah, I really enjoy the fact that Susan... Um, has more of a role this time around. It's um, b- her character's a lot more inclusive and I appreciated it. Um,
1: do you have anything else to say about Susan? I mean, yeah, I, I do kind of want to talk about her relationship with Prince Caspian. Okay. Um, this is, I think one of the more weaker elements of this. It story, was the very story. weak. I yeah. think it didn't need to happen. I pretty did it. Happen in the books? I don't know. I don't think I actually ended up reading Prince Caspian. I, I haven't I either. I need to go back and I read do too. These. Um, but you know, it, it was something that was kind of lightly treaded upon. They, you could tell that there was some kind of chemistry between the two of them, and the points in the story, but it was never really explored. Literally, the
2: first time you see it was like at an like two hour mark when he's sending her and Lucy off, and she's like, "Oh, don't worry." you'll just call me again or whatever because the whole horn thing it was like mm-hmm. and that's when you're just like wait a second is there like a love interest there yeah. and at the very end when they're about to leave and she like says uh, you know I'm like I'm like 3000 or uh, uh, 1300 years older than you and he's like uh-huh. and you know the audience laughs Aslan mm-hmm. laughs and ah, it's a funny funny joke Um, but it's just like oh that's right and then she like walks away and then she turns around and smooches him and it's just like Am I supposed to feel something right now? Yeah, I don't think I am.
1: Yeah, this was something that I noted this time around was um, there were a couple of moments when they first meet. They had like a quick glance at each other, um, that then we focus on. That, that's you know, enough. not enough, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they focus on it enough for it to be like, what, what's going on here, right? But like you mentioned, there are maybe small glances here and there up until that scene when the when he sends him off you know, find Aslan where they kind of bring it back where they're like, okay, maybe there is something here, right? That's they don't really ever explore it though. So that's something that I found to be interesting this time around was, you know, how much they how much they don't explore. And that there is there's a lot to this movie, right? That's not I am not surprised that there are a lot of elements here that are kind of fallen by the wayside because there are more important things that they need to get through. Um, and that being the relationship between um Caspian and Susan, yeah, they don't really ever go too deep into it. Not at all, yeah. But yeah, Susan, we noted the last time she was like she was high on logic, right? She was a more logical of the group, and we noted that it's fitting for her character to be an archer because you have to, you know, there's a bit more judgment with aim when it comes to something like that, right? So logic plays a bit more of a big role, bigger role in that, and you do kind of get to see, um, in this one how much she does get to use her bow, her bow a lot more. Uh, which was again a lot of fun. Kind of feels like a, uh, kind of feels like it was a the the Hunger Games before the Hunger Games. But uh, this she, her character did not catch on nearly as much as that did. Um, so that aside, um, overall, what are your thoughts on the character of Susan when it comes to her and then the collective pevensey kids? She,
2: I don't want. She's not the outcast of the group. Mm-hmm. She's just the less spoken one, I guess. Because yes, she has logic, and she says stuff, but how often do they actually follow what she says? Yeah. You know? You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh you, you don't see them like say, You're right, Susan, let's do this instead. You you really don't ever see that. So sometimes I just I don't know. She's not she's not the downfall and she's not like a plot point or anything. Yeah. But they do utilize her skills more in this film with the bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. And I guess on a sisterly level, she still shows that same amount of care for Lucy. Um, and I guess for Peter too, I mean, there's a hug there here and there, but not so much towards Edmund, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this, this, just go ahead and talk about Edmund then since he's kind of next from, uh, from Susan. What are your thoughts on Edmund? Because I have, I feel like a lot more thoughts, um, opposite thoughts this time around from the last movie. But I want to hear what what you think first.
2: Edmund is a lot more developed, but also has like maybe a total of like seven lines to the entire film. He does not talk a lot, but his actions and his drive are completely opposite from the first movie. He holds to what how aslan uh knighted him as king <clears throat> he is much more loyal much more behaved and obedient uh obviously he drops a f- the, uh, or a, a torch a british flashlight um he drops a flashlight and sabotages parts of a mission but besides that like he does what he's told he doesn't wander off or anything i love how the roles get switched a lot for him and Peter,
0: mm-hmm. obviously,
2: obviously at the beginning jumping into that fight, but also that encounter with the White Witch and yeah. that that like seance, like bringing her back, that whole uh, that whole ordeal. I found the irony in Peter now about to fall under her temptation. Yeah, yeah. him reaching out. And then, just like Edmund was stabbed in the abdomen in line the Witch, in the Wardrobe, he comes from behind and stabs through the ice sheet through the witch's abdomen. Yeah. I love that irony. I love that visual. And I love the fact that it was Edmund to come around, look at Peter, and say, don't worry, you're, you had it under control, right? Or whatever that was, he said. Yeah. Completely ir- uh, ironic. I just wish he talked more. Oh, well, no. I guess... Shouldn't say that because he actually went to King Moraz and the rest of the men mm-hmm. to uh, proclaim uh, the plans that Peter had to uh, uh, negotiate. I guess, and yeah, their way of negotiating. But in the end of the day, Edmund's still a little bit of a
1: standoffish
2: character. You know what I mean? They they really pay attention to Peter and Lucy in this movie.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like Peter and Lucy are the two that are played. Mi- that have the most attention on them. That being you know, the oldest and the youngest. The, right. The
2: group. And I cannot remember if Voyage of the Dawn Shredder touches more on Edmund. But Voyage of the Dawn Shredder does not have Peter and Susan in it. Mm-hmm. Only, and I think, flashbacks, if I can remember correctly. I've seen that movie once. And that was back in 2010. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. But I I don't remember if they touched up on Edmund. But in this movie, yes, he's, he's very skilled in swordplay and whatnot. He's... Um, he's a little cocky too, especially when addressing him as king. Um, but he's earned that right, you know. But again, Edmund, uh, he is a complete turnaround from the last movie. I will say that.
1: Yeah, I I do agree with you. I think that he kind of, like, I guess for me, he's the Susan of this movie. Like Susan, I felt like was very underdeveloped in the last one. I feel like that's now, yeah, almost like it's his turn now to be the character, the character that's underdeveloped. I don't Absolutely. think that he has much to do at all. Um, I feel like he's almost like they had to make things up for him to do like that's like to exactly deliver it. Yeah, like they like to deliver the the new or deliver the request to have the two have a Miraz and Peter fight to the death, right? In fact like that's almost like manufactured for him for some for him to do something, right? So yeah, I feel like, you know, that there are moments where I feel like, yeah, okay, his character has changed and has learned from what he had from what had happened in the last movie. I, I do want to come back to the scene, uh, the White Witch scene again in a, in a little bit because I think it's a very, very important scene to talk about. But um, uh, yeah, it's very fitting that you know he's the guy who is the one who stops the whole thing from happening and essentially does what the White Witch had done to him in the movie prior. Um, but like I said, I want, I want to come back to that scene because I think it's a very important scene because I want to talk about Lucy first. But before that, um, yeah, I think uh, Edmund, like you mentioned, He's kind of soft-spoken in this movie. It's not really a lot that he does. It feels like, I guess, like I said I feel like he is the most underdeveloped of the three of the four Pevensey kids in this movie. He's the Susan for me from the last movie, but now in this one, I feel like he doesn't really get I, anything to do. And I, I don't. I don't know really what he's there, Narnia to do outside of you know he has to be there because he's one of the four, right? Right. Um. So he
2: obviously has his moments of comedic relief. Yeah. From the start of uh, where, you know, they're they're in the train station and everything's starting to crumble and they're about to be transported and they're like, and Susan's like, quickly hold hands and like Peter's next to Edmund. he's like, I'm not going to hold your hand and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, obviously we still got that like, don't touch me, Edmund character because Skander, whatever his last name was. I think it's like, I, I don't know how to say it, but it's uh, Keens, I believe. Okay. Uh, Skander, he... In reality, as like a an actor, does not like to be touched. He mm-hmm. He's a very standoffish person. And for them to really capture him as the kind of the loner of the four of them, the he, they didn't like introduce him to like the other three brothers and sisters uh, until like later after the three had already done workshops together, like acting workshops together. Yeah. So – that's how they kind of achieved that but he regardless he still has that um that he that that weird like don't touch me uh personality Mm -hmm. but yeah the comedic relief he does provide that sometimes obviously he says um in front of uh uh miraz there he calls him something that um other than king yeah um he said like little prince or something like that. And as he's rolling up the scrolls, he looks up, he's like, it's king. And he keeps scrolling up, uh, rolling up the scroll. And, uh, he's like, Oh, sorry. Uh, Peter's high King. I'm just King. And uh, it's confusing or whatnot. Yeah. And then like, obviously up in the castle, he's fighting, he gets cornered. He looks down like at the cliff side or well, the, the tower side down in the cliff below. And he looks at the guards and smiles and like, just kind of falls back. And we're like, what? And all of a sudden, the uh, gargoyle flying. Yeah, whatever it Will is. the Beast, I don't know, you know, flies up in, the, in their faces, all that kind of stuff. So he's got that element of comedic relief that follows him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I mean, other than that, he's not crazy prominent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I think, like you mentioned, the, the roles that he does play in this story, I think he does very well. Um So it is unfortunate this time around that I feel like he's rather absent from the group, you know, more so than what I would consider to be something that is, you know, useful or that pertains to his character, right? All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to Lucy then. Um, What are your thoughts on Lucy? Because I feel like kind of like what last time she has a pretty big role in the story.
2: Lucy is just like the last film. She's got the faith like a child. Um, Mm -hmm. And you notice that right away she was there at the start she was the first one in it sticks with her she's got the most hope the most faith and it shows especially along the cliffside uh, or the river gorge you know that whole thing and she we don't see it we're not supposed to only she sees it because mm-hmm. it just shows she's the only one who sees this yeah um and she looks and she says aslan it's aslan he was right over there and they're like do you see him now and all that she's like i'm not crazy and whatnot, not Edmund kind of backs her up, but she holds on to that faith like a child. She always believes that Aslan's going to be back. And she kind of puts that sense back into her siblings because they're like, I don't see him. Why don't I see him? And she's like telling them, maybe because you're not looking like I am. Like maybe you're, mm-hmm. you don't trust Aslan in this time. You're trusting in yourselves. She's pulling that on them. And so we see the Lucy that we, you know, we know from the last one.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there. Her role hasn't really changed a whole lot since the last movie. Um, I did you ever feel like her faith maybe is being challenged in this one? I felt like maybe a little bit, but I, I definitely see it being challenged, like with yeah. the confusion
2: in her other siblings.
1: Yeah, but I never really felt like that was really a big point of contention. because It definitely wasn't. It, yeah,
2: it definitely is not touched on like into a point where it's like a plot point where she's sitting there like, maybe Aslam's gone forever. Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing. She never gets to that point. It's definitely like she's trying to convince them and she's worried about them, but it's never I think we're on your own. Right. I think we're on our own. So
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, like I mentioned, there's a little bit there, but it really is not, you know, you know, they don't really dive too deep into it. Um, so yeah, I I feel like her character while still very, very important, um, and like you said, I think the most important part is that she's the one who still has, you know, that belief that Aslan's still like he's still gonna he's gonna come back, right? And we it's kind of cool because when we do see Aslan when we finally do at the very, very, very end of the movie, um, I, no, actually it may have been in the in the flashback that we see about halfway in. Um, she does remark, like you know, you've grown, and he goes, and ason res- uh, responds back, saying, "Well, much like you, so have I, right?" So it's it's he it's kind of cool to see that parallel between uh, Ason and her, um, where it's like he was saying, she's got the one who's got the faith of a child, right? That's starting to mature now, uh, and we get to see that visually with Aslan as well. But yeah, you're right. I think her character doesn't play again a much bigger role. Other than that, with the with she is the one who kind of um she's the one who says oh, I think it's magic. Everybody hold hand. No, she she says I think it's magic, and then Susan says everybody hold hands. Right. So again, it's kind of like Lucy's somewhat of the leader for these for the group uh for the pregnancy kids back in to to Narnia again, um somewhat. So yeah, that's a same kind of role that she played in the last movie as well.
2: Not to mention she's the one that. Um, has a dream of Aslan. Yeah. Uh, she has it while they're laying around outside in the campfire, and she wakes up and goes deep into the forest, and we see the trees move again. Mm-hmm. And before you know it's a dream, you're thinking, oh, what's happening? Here we go. And I do want to say, from a music standpoint, this was underwhelming. Yes, the Western Witch, the Beaver Dam, is playing, mm-hmm. and it's very nostalgic. And you're just like, yes. Problem is... The delivery of Aslan during this is beyond underwhelming. If you watch it and you put the music to it, you it cuts to showing him in the middle of a phrase oh, rather really? than right on a downbeat. Interesting. I picked up on this, and I was watching it, and it, I want, I want the... Doo, 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 wah, 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 like when... Aslan is shown, I want that triumphant horns yeah. in those. It's not. It's in the middle of a phrase. Hmm. It starts the phrase and then cuts to him. You want that downbeat because you want to feel something there. Yeah. It's I our wonder, first time
1: seeing him. Yeah. I wonder if part of that is because they wanted to save that for maybe later. Um, but remind me, does that, ever, does that happen later with when they finally like really introduce Aslan at the very end? Did they introduce him in any kind of special way? I was gonna get to that, okay. and um,
2: where he's, where she's, uh, Lucy's uh, on a horse through the forest, and the Telmarines are following her, and then Aslan, you see him through the trees running. Yeah, it's still underwhelming. Mm, I'm okay. like, I know he comes back, I, and I thought that I'm like, okay, it's a dream, it's not the real thing. So yes, we we won't probably have as prominent as like the return of a king kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but. It's still when you're seeing him running in the forest, still in the middle of a phrase like he's going and there's nothing that adds to the element of him running and then pouncing and coming through all of it. It's a bummer, but it's an opportunity wasted, I think, for Goosebumps. I'll I'll just say that.
1: Yeah, I I wondered if maybe it was partially like an editing choice that they had made. Um, but Could very much well be, but... I mean, either way, I you okay, need to redeem it. Yeah, and either way, I don't think that that's necessary. Like that, that big climactic hit for you know introducing Aslan is even in the track itself, right? So yes. So I would say it's maybe a combination of both, right? Uh, an editing choice and a composition choice, maybe. So um, either way, okay. Anything else more to say on Lucy before we move on? Because I do, I do really want to talk about that about white witch scene. Not too much on the, Lucy. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that, the, the scene that I've been waiting to get to. So this is kind of like the scene where, um, you know, there's always like that low point in the hero's journey, right? There's always the lower the lowest point before the climax where they have to accept the role um, that they were given, right? Um, so this happens with the return, someone of a return to the White Witch, right? There, are uh, Nickabrick is his name. Um, he's one of the one of the dwarves, and we we mentioned his name a few times before this moment. Um, but he, you know, coerces uh, Prince Caspian. He is like, hey, I can guarantee you that uh, Maraz will die if you give me a drop of your blood, right? That's the deal that he makes with with uh, with Caspian. And Caspian says, absolutely, right. Because at this point, you know, he he's built up, essentially, Almost, he's built up hate for his uncle, right? And so we ca- we do kind of get to see how uh, how much that hate is almost completely consumed him at that moment, right? And so when he gets in there, the two creatures that um, uh, are part of the White Witch's uh, gang, they come out and they're doing some weird dancing thing, and they draw a circle, and you know the whole thing happens. She shows up and and whatnot, and then Peter comes to save him, right? but then ends up in the circle himself and is entranced by the White Witch in that moment, right? Also signifying to me that, you know, his arrogance up until that point has become so bad that, you know, it, he's in need, great need of, of, of repair. And we kind of get to see how in this moment, you know, with the arrogance that he's already had and that, you know, the temptation that White Witch already represents, uh, you do get to see how much that begins to affect him and how, You know, he's unwilling, he's not able to continue to fight um, and to protect um, Prince Caspian in that moment. Uh, And then, of course, uh, in comes Edmund and he finishes the job, like we mentioned earlier, fittingly. So I think this is a very important scene because it's the thing where, you know, these Prince Caspian and Peter's character, their biggest flaws, that being uh, Peter's arrogance and Prince Caspian's hate towards, towards his uncle come to a head at this moment. So, what what are your thoughts on this from a both a thematic standpoint and a music standpoint? Because I think this is also somewhere harkening back on some of those older uh, those older tunes. Those I older will melodies. say yes, um,
2: those two creatures that uh, summon the witch and kind of coax Caspian into it. The whole scene where I mean, it, it, there's not too much to it music wise until Peter and them enter. And it's when they enter, when we hear that part of, from the score of the battle, uh, that yeah. like seven minute song or seven minute track, I'll say, uh, it's that scene that we go back to in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when that centaur uh, minute, what's a minotaur, what's the difference? I think like? it's a minotaur, minotaur is the bull, right? Yeah. I, I'm having a brain fart. It's 10 o'clock here and all that. <laughs> um, it's when the minotaur, comes over on the rock and it's just him. And we hear that. Ah, oh ye, ah. yeah. Um, it's when he steps up and like we see the witches army. We bring that theme back as soon as they uh, sabotage that, that summoning. And it's like the witches, um, the witches portion of the battle mm-hmm. is now back music wise for us to hear. And because of that it brings you back to like the the dangers of the white witch and thinking oh my gosh we know what she's capable of here we go
1: yeah i agree and it's it kind of makes it somewhat scary um kind of how in the last movie we had the the stone table scene which we noted was a little bit intense um this one's more of that same kind of feeling right You know, it's it's not necessarily, I would say, as uh, it's not the same. Obviously, it's very, very different. But we do get to see how, you know, the return of the White Witch is still possible. Right. Which is something that's very uh, not good, obviously. Um, But I like how, you know, she's brought into this as somewhat of like, you know, the thing to kind of put the cherry on top for these two characters. Right. These two characters have been very Very much parallels of one another up until this point, this moment in the story, and even past this too. You know, you do get to see how after this, they somewhat learn to forgive each other because they had been kind of on each other's throats the whole time. But they also learn, like you know, the errors of their ways. Right? They they learn that you know Peter has gone so far where so far with his arrogance that he needs to back off and he needs to learn that you know a king's a king needs to act like a king. Not like somebody who thinks he's in charge, right? And Prince Caspian needs to learn to let go of that hate because it's the thing that's going to end up destroying him in the end, right? So I don't know. I, I find this, I found this scene to be one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie thematically, because of you know, you get to see how these two characters, even the Peter who came to protect Prince Caspian, how easily he was entranced by the White Witch, uh, once he got into her and once he got into view. So I don't know. I found this scene to be very interesting to me, um, both from a thematic standpoint and a music standpoint and a visual standpoint. Um, That's why I wanted to bring it up and talk about it. Right.
2: Uh, we'll backtrack a little bit. Like before we even get to see the stone table again, when they're looking at the paintings on the wall and whatnot, oh, yeah. Yeah. I just want to touch really quickly on the fact that, yes, they're they're like, where are we? And they're like, well, you really don't know. This is Aslan's tomb and all that. Well, it's when they pass Mr. Tumnus's um, painting mm-hmm. of him at the lamppost, and you hear the Narnia lullaby very briefly. Yeah, it's that hit me hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the whole timeline going back to that timeline. Thirteen hundred years, like Mr. Tumnus has not existed for thirteen hundred years, yet here he is, and our music, his music, plays over top. It's just a special thing, and once again it's how powerful music is and it get,
1: it got me it yeah. got me when i saw that yeah there are moments in here where they got me too some of it was the that was one moment and then there was also um partially the battle sequences um i think most notably when Miraz's men start riding towards the narnians right that there's a moment in the in the music and the visuals there i was like okay i'm getting pretty excited right um so yeah i mean obviously this time around just like last time music is a very Integral part to the story, much like how the music kind of helped define Lord of the Rings as well, and you know, very, very iconic music. It's a somewhat of the same idea here. Um, obviously, I wouldn't necessarily consider it as iconic as Lord of the Rings, but it's still very important to the story. And just like last time, you know, the battle, se- the battle, um, the 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 compositions that are used for the battle sequences are very, very fun to listen to. But all around the soundtrack is uh, again a great, great composition from Harry Gregson Williams again. Not
2: to mention Harry Gregson Williams. Fun fact: voiced the squirrel yeah. who he was like, oh, "We we can collect nuts and then reap cheap." The mouse is like, "Yes, yeah, and wrong with the telemarines? Shut up, kind yeah. of thing. Um, yeah, that's Harry Gregson Williams, and I remember like I had to look it up to confirm it, but I was watching it, and I've and I've seen. You know bits where Harry Gregson Williams has talked about his scores and all that, so mm-hmm. I know I'm, um, I'm very familiar with his voice. So when I heard it, I was like, "Wait a minute!" And yeah. So I had to look it up and confirm. It. And sure enough, Harry Gregson Williams, our composer who wrote one of the best scores of all time,
1: is a squirrel. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of it's just kind of funny to see. I mean, it's not necessarily uncommon for like a film composer to play a voice in in the in the movie. Like for instance. Uh, Danny Elfman played the singing voice for Jack Skellington in, uh, Nightmare Before, Nightmare Before, Christmas. Um, and there's, there's one other that I remember, but I don't remember off the top Michael of my Giacchino, head. Michael Giacchino, I will that's say right, that's he right.
2: was in Coco as the conductor at, that's the one I'm thinking uh, of, yeah. Ernesto de la Cruz's like big, um, Day of the Dead concert at the, like mm-hmm. the climax of the film. Like he's the skeleton director at the orchestra. Yeah, I think yeah, it's awesome.
1: That was one was of the that was one I was thinking of. Yeah, so it's not like it's very uncommon for you know a, a film composer to be you know a part of a, a very you know small character like a cameo of of, of the movie. So
2: right, and I mean Harry Gregson Williams and um, Adamson, mm-hmm. uh, the director. Yeah, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew Adamson. Adamson. There it is. Yeah. yeah, that's throwing me off. Andrew Adamson. They have worked together. They work on a lot of projects together. They were mm-hmm. they were there with Shrek. Everything. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, well, I do want to kind of hop into the battle sequences now. Um now we've kind of mentioned them here and there, but now I really want I really want to talk about them because there are two big ones. Um there's the middle portion where they storm the castle, and then there's of course the last one, which is a rather long one at that, Very too. lengthy. Yeah. It's like an hour. No, it,
2: it's not an hour. It's like 30 40 minutes.
1: Yeah, it's long. And that uh, I do kind of lump in the duel between um Peter Oh it's, and, yeah, it's definitely part of it. Yeah, and Maraz, I think mean, I lumped that in with what it does end up being and that is that big battle at the end. It's as just well. the it's just the final conflict is what we can call it. Yeah. So last time we mentioned that, you know, we found the battle sequences um for a PG movie to be something that was very interesting to us because we felt like those battle sequences you know rather they, they pushed that rating a bit far, you know, for a PG. Um, this time around, and we did mention this last podcast, I feel like it pushes it even farther. I was going
2: to say, if you thought in the first one that this should be PG 13, this one should definitely be PG 13.
1: Yeah. It's getting really close. We we see
2: little drops of blood here and there. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't really call for it to be PG 13 and they have to do a lot of cuts, uh, so that we're not seeing like, you know, sword impalement or head cutting off. Like it's all off screen. Mm hmm. You'll you'll get like wide shots and like far shots in the battles sequences where people are like are getting slashed and flipping over and all that. Right. But you're not gonna see like like sword impalement or anything like that. But it man, it comes so close. It does,
1: and we do get a lot more. In the first one, we got a few like uh, arrows being impaled into into monsters, but I feel like that happens a lot more here um, in this movie, which is some kind of funny because we have a lot more human characters to fight with than you know fantasy creatures. Um, and there's a lot more human deaths in this one than there are in the last one. So it is interesting that, um, you know, given that this is a PG rating, I wonder how far, you know, how much more would they have had to add to this for it to push it over the line? I feel like it would be very much, but either way, in my opinion, I feel like the battle sequences in this one, um, are better than the last one. Way better. Yeah. I think that that's, which is kind of, I do have, I do have a lot of nostalgia for the big battle at the end for the last one. But I feel like this one, in terms of choreography, in terms of you know what all they do, Scenario what happens, and scenarios. Battle plan. Yeah. Everything just feels a little bit more grounded in this one. It feels like they aren't cutting nearly as much. It feels like they are trying to emulate more of uh that realistic style, somewhat of Lord of the Rings like, right? I, I like that idea or that I like how they go about it in this one. It's not it's not the same as Lord of the Rings, as we mentioned last time, but it does kind of feel like that. I think the biggest
2: thing about why I love the first battle so much was it was my first like theater battle, mm-hmm. I guess, or a movie, like a big battle in a movie. It was something I was not used to. And I had talked about this on the podcast last time. It's just something I didn't see all the time. Right. In a movie.
1: Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that we both hold, because we both hold a lot of nostalgia for that last movie, I feel like, you know, w- I'm going to remember the last, the battle from the first movie more than I will That's here. what I was going to say. Yeah. That it's, was it. There, This one does not, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I've only seen this once before re- reviewing it this time, and that was when it released, right? So I don't hold a lot of nostalgia for this because I don't remember much. I remember a couple of scenes the, I remember that there was a duel between, uh, Peter and between Moraz, and the, of course, there was a big battle at the end, but specifically I remember, uh, the scene when Cas when they have the castle siege, um, uh, and Caspian goes in and has his blade up to Moraz, and Moraz steps forward and the blade does kind of stick into his neck. And I remember, I did remember seeing that it was bleeding. Right. And I remember being like, Whoa, when I, I watched in the theater, thinking I'm surprised uh, this got a PG rating, you know? So um, either either way, uh, I do still hold a lot of nostalgia for that last movie, but I do feel like from uh, from a more objective standpoint, I feel like these battle sequences are just better in almost every way than they were last time, which is, again, kind of a testament to how much Andrew Adamson was wanting to improve and go bigger and spend more money on these sets and on these extras and all things like that. So I did mention it last time. The castle siege, I think, is really what pushed it for me. For uh, thinking, oh, this is a PG movie, because as I mentioned, uh, they you know they storm the castle um, of the tele. I keep wanting to say telemetry.
2: Telemarine.
1: They storm the castle of the Telmarines and the the bunch of Nonians that are left that are slaughtered. Right, and we don't really necessarily see that. But I think what is interesting too is I, I saw it this time when I went back and watched the scene again. The Peter, you know, he he Peter makes it barely makes it out uh, from the gate before it closes. He then stops and looks back, and one you do see an Arnian who was at the very front of the gate trying to get out. He they make eye contact, and he like steps back away and then turns. His he turns away from Peter and walks back into back walk back into the courtyard to fight some more. I didn't notice that when I first watched it, um, and when I back I went back and rewound the scene to watch it again, um, and sure enough, I noticed it that second time. And I was like, "That's interesting," because it kind of shows you know some of a foreshadow of you know of Peter's you know his so his his arrogance, of course, getting the best of him, and now that he's called this called this strike. How much has affected, you know, those around him. So I, I found that kind of interesting and kind of showing that, you know, this is not necessarily as playful and as mysterious and as and joyful as last time around. It's going to be a lot more darker, and that's really shown here, I think, in this scene.
2: I really remember like things such as like the trees really coming alive this time around. That was one big one. Um, I also remember them running under the battlefield. Yep. Uh, chopping down the pillars and then like just surrounding them from the ground up. I loved that as a kid. I was like, "Whoa, yeah. that didn't happen in the first one." Mm-hmm. It's Kicking it up a notch, you know. And I remember, I remember the knighting in the uh, the crowning of Miraz um, in the throne room, and me really realizing, I'm like, "Okay, am I going to see really any any like fantasy creatures?" And remember sitting in the theater thinking, like, "I don't think I like this because." I just didn't like seeing man in charge, you know, that weren't the Pevensey kids. I'm like, th- I feel like it was being ruined, but of course it wasn't being ruined. There's always a plan with CS Lewis. Um, and I definitely remember the ending with that big uh, Red Sea type of ordeal. Almost. Yeah. yeah. It was almost like Pharaoh and his guards being s- that, swallowed yeah. by the Red Sea. Um, except it was like, uh Cepespian being like the only person who really
1: like that we see dies mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was just about to go there here in a second. Uh, given that we're kind of in an Exodus-like story here, and we do end with a very Exodus-y um, ending to the battle, that being this, they run across this bridge that they've been building for a long time to get over to fight the Narnians. And then uh, Aslan calls, like, I don't know, we know what it's called, like, I forgot or whatever. Um, but just like... With the Red Sea and the and Pharaoh with his men as uh, how it was parted for you know the Israelites to get apart they get across, um it closes in when Pharaoh tries to get across himself so, yeah very much harkening on Exodus there and I was just about to go there it's it's kind of funny that you know it's that river god thing that Aslan calls to that it's like ends a projection of like a.
2: Poseidon almost. Like yeah, anything. almost.
1: Yeah. It's it's kind of funny that it goes down that route. Um it since it's already following its this exodus-like story.
2: Well, if they would have gone like the Red Sea type of ordeal where the waters come from both sides, I don't think viewers would understand that Aslan
1: did that. Yeah, it would be too much on it would be too on the nose, I feel. Would,
2: yeah. Yeah. I think what had to happen was they had to have that projection to show like the human character characteristic as if like that thing was fighting for them, mm-hmm. you know, it yeah. wasn't so much like a natural occurrence, like Aslan controls the water now. Oh, but like instead he like summon this type of water thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I really, really like um, the quote from Peter Dinklage dwarf. His name is Trumpkin mm-hmm. that says, well, after Lucy, Says, do you guys not believe me that he was there and they're like talking about how we get down this gorge and uh trump gets like falling or whatever? Because he's also comedic relief. He says, Yeah, look, I'm not going to jump off a cliff after someone that doesn't exist. Yeah. That is a complete like one foreshadowing two just symbolism to people who do not have faith.
1: Yeah. And yeah, he's very, and I also find him like from the stories, um, from the stories standpoint, you know, he's very much a character who kind of embodies that of the rest of the Narnians, right? He, he's kind of like the one who's someone of the story representation of the Narnians in this moment, right? He's like, yeah, Aslan doesn't exist, right? It's been 13 1300 years since we, you know, since he came here supposedly to him, Um, and so, you know, who knows if he actually exists, right? Yeah, the voice
2: of the pessimists. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. He, they, and which is very fitting because, you know, the Narnians are also very pessimistic, especially at this point because of what's happened, right? But yeah, you're right. I feel like he's also somewhat of, uh, maybe a character for audiences to connect with, um, who maybe don't have, you know, who are, aren't maybe necessarily in with Christianity, right? right? He could be some of that character where you do get to see how, you know, he's been pushing it off and pushing it off and rejecting it and rejecting it. But then in the end of the story, he comes face to face with the lion at the very end. And uh, Aslan roars in his face to show that, am I real now? I think he actually says that too. um, Something something along those lines. So yeah, he's very much a character, very much a pessimistic character um, that learns, you know, in the end, all of these legends that I've been told, they are actually real. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Tommy, what are your final thoughts for The Chronicles of Narnia and The Chronicles of Narnia and Prince Caspian?
2: We've we talked about how this isn't a nostalgic movie for us. It was a movie that when I was first introduced to it, I was a little unhappy with it. I was a little surprised as to what was happening because I did not understand the history of Narnia and I did not understand the books. Um, And because of that theater experience was, yes, it was action packed and very cool, but there were so many elements as a kid that I just did not enjoy all the change, all the weird new history. And like, where did this all happen? Where did this come from? Like, you know, um, and because of that, it never held like value to me as a kid. So because of that, I couldn't connect it with my childhood very much and whatnot. However, returning to it, uh, despite all of the flaws that we pointed out in character and maybe some pacing issues here and there, um, I still can say that I do enjoy this. And because it is Narnia and because of the music and because of the characters that I do know and love um, in this new season, in this new area, well, I shouldn't say new area, but like just in this new way of life that they have to overcome, like... I do enjoy it. I do enjoy seeing them have to overcome this. Um, But like we said, there are plenty of flaws in there, uh, whether it be with the characters themselves, like kind of pushing a few things to the side and or adding like little plot points that just don't need to be there, like the love interest. Um, Regardless of all those, this is still a movie that I'm glad I own. I mean, I I own the first and now this one, um, I've had them for a while, but I do not o- own uh, *Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, And it's actually because of *Caspian* that Disney backed out of *Voyage of the Dawn Treader*. Did you know that? No, I guess I didn't know that. It's 20th Century Fox. Really? Yeah, before Disney bought them. Oh, that's interesting. That's why. I guess I, I didn't that's know why. That's the only reason that um, *Voyage of the Dawn Shredder is actually on Disney Plus. Otherwise, it couldn't have been. Gotcha. Because okay. Disney owns Fox now. However. Back in the day, back in 2010, when Disney did not own them, they did not want their name on it because of how big of a flop it was in the box office. Because it did not hold up to the first one.
1: Yeah, no, it did not. uh, Because got like 175
2: million out of the 250 million, or
1: 250 uh, million. So it made domestically 141.6 million, right? But worldwide, it made 417. So it didn't even budget. It didn't even double its budget, which for a Disney film, that's a flop.
2: That is a flop. Yeah. So because of that, they did not support. The third one, they were kind of off on their own, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. However, going back to Prince Caspian and my thoughts, it is very enjoyable as an adult who can appreciate history and um, events taking place to that cause um, massive cataclysmic. Catacly- oh my goodness, cataclysmic change! I really like this movie. I love the action. I love the battle sequences. I do like the the character development that is there. Mm-hmm. I like seeing Peter struggle. Um, I like seeing Lucy continue to have that faith as she always has. Um, and because of that, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10 because it doesn't live up. And it's not because of the nostalgia. It's just it doesn't live up to the first one, I don't think. Um, give it an 8 out of 10. I recommend it. Go watch it on Disney Plus or go get the Blu-ray. Uh, it's... It is enjoyable and I'm not gonna knock it for that.
1: Yeah Prince Caspian I, I do agree with you with a lot of things that you said I think that Prince Caspian um, for what for the characters that are developed here um, I think that they are very very interesting to me um, from its and I can this is a movie where you know you can tell when comparing it to its previous movie you can tell there was a lot more money sunk into it this time around than what we had before. Um, so it's unfortunate that, that this was a big flop in the box office because I would be very interested to see, you know, what would have come from the, from the third in the trilogy, right? This is kind of um, somewhat of a send off. It kind of says it for a sequel, but you know, it's only going to be with half of the Pevensie kids. But that aside, I think that Prince Caspian does a very good job at uh, kind of capturing somewhat of what the first movie had already captured. Right? It captures Narnia very, very well, I feel. Um, where I feel like this is a fantasy world, like it's one that I can actually get behind, right? So I think that what it does, I think that what Prince Caspian does well, it does really well. But I think what it, when it I think what some of the things that fall short are some of the things that I think are kind of important. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call them game-breaking. Like Edmund's character, I think is a, a great example one of the four Pevensey kids, he's given very little to do. And so I feel like, um I feel like Prince Caspian is a movie that, you know, does a very good job with a lot of things. And I think that in some ways, or in a lot of ways, I would say it surpasses its pre- the previous movie. Um But I think that that awe and that wonder that comes from that first movie still sticks with me more. And that very well could just be the nostalgia talking, because as I mentioned, we have a lot of nostalgia for that movie. But I think that, between the two of these if I if I between the two of these, I think that this one overall is probably the better of the two. I think it from what how it explains on a lot of things that that first movie wasn't able to talk, wasn't able to touch either from budget constraints or whatever but I think that Prince Caspian does a lot more that I'm looking for than what the first one does. however, it still does not have that nostalgia factor right That's a kind of a big part in my rating. Um, or at least in what I think of the movie. And I tried to give the first one, I tried to be as, I tried to separate myself from the nostalgia and from what I'm actually thinking. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that here with this one, you know, I, I, it's not as hard to do as it was last time. So I think my score is still going to be the same as last time. It's seven out of 10. Um, and I started to recommend, but I think that for me, um, if I were to, if I didn't have nostalgia, I think I might go for Prince Caspian over the first one. Um, so that I guess those are just kind of my quick thoughts on that. All right, well, thank you, Tommy, for joining me on this review of Prince Caspian. Um, I thought that was a very interesting discussion we had, um, especially for a movie that we didn't necessarily have a lot of nostalgia for, um, which is just kind of funny because of the first one. But thank you for joining me. Yes, thank you. Um, so next week, um, Andrew might be back. I will let you know when I find out more. Um, but definitely, Tommy and I will be back to review Uh, the the voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I'm curious about because I haven't seen it. Um, I know you have, I have once in 2010. Yes, so I'm curious to see, you know, what that discussion is going to bring out of us.
2: I literally only remember like one scene.
1: Okay, so that'll be next week, but uh, by the time you're hearing this recording, Corbett and I would have already recorded, uh, well, yeah, we would have already recorded our Halloween special. And so between this review and Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you'll actually get a Halloween special that comes out on uh, October 31st. So that'd be me and Corby coming back. Um, then we'll have Voyage of the Dawn Treader after that. And then he and I are going to jump into a Rocky retrospective that's taking the place of what was going to be um, a different retrospective that was going to be Denis of. But because they moved Dune, we're going to swap it out. And uh, we're going to hold that retrospective until Dune is actually going to be put in theaters so either way you don't want to miss that um and i'm glad that we got to have you know new guests on the show and hopefully we get to have you back tommy and andrew back at some point in the future i'm sure we will anytime yeah so thank you listeners for joining us on this review and we'll see you next week actually with uh the halloween special a few days after that we'll be back with voyage of the dawn treader
0: Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content, such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe, whether you're on YouTube, Apple, google or stitcher or your favorite podcast service and while you're at it please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you so don't forget to share with your friends and family and we'll see you next week listeners Some water.
2: you drink your water drink your water thirsty boy we we'll talk again yeah sir first i i was definitely not on that one that was weird drink your water thirsty boy that was weird i definitely heard that
1: yeah i did too i was kind of trying to figure that out all right well we're gonna go ahead and get right into spoilers so if you haven't seen um okay i keep wanting to say legend of zoda
2: i don't know why you want to go there first but i don't know <laughs>
1: Well, I I do I, I guess I'll bring some kind of comparison to it in here in a second, but... All right, plot summary time. 13 years... No. 13 no. years of past. <laughs> 13,000... No. 1,300. Yes. Goodness gracious. It's going to be a, one of those podcasts, isn't it? With some more telem Telemarine... Telemarines. Well, I keep trying to say telemetry. Telemarine or I telemarines. Going, I keep wanting to say telemarines. Like, just think of Marines tel-marines. like the army... Um, the... Army branch and just say, "Tell, tell Marines." Caspian is hailed king of Narnia, and the four Pevensey kids are sent back to London, but not before Susan and Caspian share a goodnight kiss. Goodnight, goodbye, kiss. It wasn't
2: like she was never. Cha- come on,
1: come on. She. <laughs> Why help me, please? Why me, please? I don't think it's the. I think it's the actual mic. That sounds like a it mic. It might problem. be the mic problem. Oh goodness gracious me. Why is it doing this? Goodness gracious me. There it goes. Help me, please.
2: All right.